this has to do with today's message? Nothing at all. <laughs> Nothing at all. We're going to talk about John chapter 11. No, actually, I'm going to tie it in at the very end. I've got 53 verses to cover, so in order to get out of here before 2 o'clock, we're going to have to hop, skip, and run through it. As you enter this narrative, I titled this message, Do You Believe This? Another title could be, Lord, if you had been here, or maybe even, I'm disappointed with you, Lord. As you enter this narrative, I want you to not think about the end of the passage. Don't think about what's going to happen. I want you to enter it and walk along beside Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Uh, I know you just hopped to the last of the message, didn't you? As soon as I said Lazarus, you thought about the resurrection. Okay, right now at this point, don't think about it. Walk kind of blindly through the passage with Mary and Martha. Walk as if you know Jesus as well as you do today, because Mary and Martha knew Jesus very well. They had an intimate friendship. In fact, in verse, I think it's verse 3, not verse 5, it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. There was an intimate relationship here. I would say that Jesus, as he visited Jerusalem for the Passover and for the feast that would happen, he probably stopped by Mary and Martha's house. So there's a time when they sat down together. It's just not an acquaintance. They sat down together and had fellowship. They broke bread together. They reclined at the table. They probably laughed and talked. Well, the message is sent to Jesus from Martha and Mary. A message is sent after Lazarus becomes sick. Now, is Martha and Mary worried? Probably not. Oh, they've met Jesus. They've talked with the disciples. The disciples have dined with them and told them about the miraculous stories that they've seen, the miracles Jesus has done, Jesus turning water into wine, Jesus healing the cripple at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus returning the sight to a blind man, Jesus walking on water. They, I don't think they were too worried. They approached it probably in a, in a two-way fashion. They're sending to the great physician, the God-man, the man in the flesh. First, they're praying. Like in Psalms 10, 17, you hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted, and you encourage them, and you listen to their cry. In 31, 22, in my alarm, I said, I am cut off from your sight. Yet you heard my cry for mercy, and I, you heard my call for help. The other way is that we don't get the privilege, but they were able to send a physical message to the Lord. Wouldn't you like a two-pronged way to approach the Lord? You can pray, then write a letter, put it in a mailbox, and know that God received your letter. Well, they know that the Lord Jesus received their message. They sent their messengers to him. What's amazing is that in John 11, 5 and 6, after Jesus received the message, he ignored it. It seems uncharacteristic of God to ignore our pleas. But it says that Jesus heard the message and stayed two more days. After this, he told his disciples, we must go see Lazarus because he's dead. The message didn't say Lazarus is dead. The message just said that the one you love is sick. Now, I'm sure that there were subtleties behind that message. I'm sure that 
that message was received and Martha and Mary were most likely thinking, Lord, this is the family you stay with near Jerusalem and Bethany. This is the family that you stay with, that you dine with, you eat meals with, and the brother that you love, that you've laughed with and talked with is sick. Please come quickly. Now, you're probably wondering, as I did, what was Martha and Mary thinking when Jesus didn't arrive? Not only did he not arrive and heal your brother, he didn't arrive in time before he died. Not only did he not arrive in time for his death, but it was four days after his death. He's been in the tomb for four days, and Jesus still has not arrived. What do you think the sisters were thinking? What would be going through your thoughts? What would you be thinking? For sure, these are not super Christians. I, knew, I know a, a lot of great Christian men and women. I don't know any super Christian that just accepts the fact that I'm going through a trial and, you know, the Lord is just going to take care of it. I don't have any worries. I don't have any complaints. I'm not, you know, I can't pay the bills on time. I've lost my job. You know, it's all cool. The Lord's going to take care of it. I don't know too many people who don't have their cage rattled when such a trial comes their way. The deal is, is before a test, before a trial, we know the Lord. We love him. We, we have expectations that on him from the scriptures, we have a relationship with him. We're praying. We're in communication. We have a relationship with him. And then a great trial comes and puts us under such great pressures. New facts about who God start to appear. New evidences need to be examined. I'm going through this trial now. I've been a Christian for five, 15, 30 years and I don't know what God is doing to me in this trial. Why am I going through this? Now there are new facts and evidences that I need to reexamine. And I need to ask myself, is Jesus who he claims he is as I go through this trial and this time? I think all of us do it. I don't think anybody, any of us just say, oh, I'm going through a trial and everything's hunky-dory. No, we have to re-examine the facts, and then we have to ask ourselves, do I still believe? Even though I'm going through this trial, even though I got these great pressures, even though I got such remorse and heartache, do I still believe that Jesus is who he says he is? I know what I'd be thinking. I'd be thinking, man, I've shared meals with you. Where were you? I sent you a message. My messengers have returned. They delivered that message, and you're still late. Not only is he dead, but it's four days later. I've heard your disciples' stories. You are the one, I know, you are the one that met Abraham in his tent. You are the one that made the covenant with our father, Abraham. You are the one that was the pillar of of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that led our people out of slavery. You were the one that talked face to face with Moses and you sat at my table. Have I sinned against you? Isn't that the number one thing we think when we start going through a trial? Lord, have I sinned? Do I deserve this? Is this your punishment? Have you forsaken us? My brother Lazarus was too young to die. What's up, Lord? Where were you? 
in the greatest time of my trial, in the greatest need of my life, where are you, God? It doesn't appear that you're here for us. Now, four days into the, after the funeral, the people are gathered around Martha and Mary. Jesus had plenty of time to, to appear, to save the day, to rescue the day. And you're sitting there still wondering where he is. When Martha hears that Jesus was outside of town, like Martha, she got up and she got busy and she got moving. She went out to confront Jesus, to ask him, where have you been? Why haven't you answered our pleas? Why haven't you answered our cries? Have you been there yourself? Have you been there where there's been a great trial and you're wondering, where are you, Lord? Have you gotten that phone call? The bank calls and says, we're foreclosing on your house. I've talked to a lot of people here who's gotten that phone call. Maybe you got the phone call that said, you're on the layoff list and next week you'll be unemployed. Maybe you've gotten the call from the physician that says, your wife has cancer, your husband has cancer. Or the phone call from your prodigal, mom, dad, I'm not coming home. I got the phone call. I was about 16 years old. I was in high school. My name came over the intercom, and I was called to the office to answer the phone call. My mother was under the side. Sean, your dad's in the hospital. Come home, and I'll explain later. What had happened is my dad, I hate to say it, but my dad was a happy drunk. He was a lot easier to get along with when he was drunk. But oftentimes he would go too far and drink way too much. At this point, he had drank so much, he was so out of it that he started teasing and harassing my brother. My brother's handicapped. My dad's about 6'2", 6'3", about 280 pounds. My brother's about maybe 5 foot and 105 pounds. He starts teasing him, you gimp. Hop along, what are you doing? Teasing him about his manhood. My brother got up and left, went to his own room and locked the door. My dad decided the locked door wasn't good enough. He broke open the door. And my brother at times would fear for his life because my dad would harass him so much. He had a rifle by his bed. When my dad opened the door, shot him. The bullet was right next to his heart, and they weren't sure if he would survive the surgery. You see, my father's blood alcohol level was a .36, .38 highly intoxicated. They were so worried about the intoxication that if they had given him too much anesthesia, he may not survive the surgery. When he came out of it, they were worried about his blood alcohol level being so high that they didn't want to give him too much painkillers because that might kill him also. When I arrived about 24 hours later, I was standing at his bedside, and you can see him wreathing in pain as, as he slept as he tried to recuperate, he's wreathing in pain and his body's twitching and he's moving all over the place. As I spent some time talking with him and, and praying, I, my head was down and I stepped back away from his bed. And I looked on the floor and there's a pool of blood on the floor. My shoes are covered with his blood. And I'm wondering, did the doctors forget something? I'm 16 years old. Did the doctors forget something? Did they forget to patch a hole? Was there another wound that they might have missed? Why would my father be bleeding to death right here in the hospital? They called in the nurses, and what had happened, he had fidgeted so much that he pulled the IV out, and the blood was spilling on the floor. 
So I'm sitting there looking at this blood covering my feet, and I'm wondering, is this my family? This is my dad. This is my brother. My family acts this way. This is my own flesh and blood. These are the people I come from. Am I just like them? Is this a reflection of who I am? I just remember the intense feelings I had. I remember I couldn't pray. I couldn't utter the words. And that evening I was in the living room, curled up in a fetal position. I couldn't even say, God, I cannot pray. The only things that came out of my mouth at that time in such distress was, oh, oh. That was my prayers. I'm so glad for Romans 8.26. It says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Have you been there? Such a great trial in your life. The pressure is from all around, and you can barely breathe. You can't even pray because you're so worn out from weeping and crying. The only thing you can say is, oh. We know. We do not know how we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. It's amazing to find that. Even though we are weeping and we're groaning and we don't have words to express what we're going through in this trial, we know that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us with such groans like we are, with such groans that words cannot even express how he is interceding for us at that time. As I was saying, Martha's a doer. She heard that Jesus was outside of town. She drops everything and she goes. Mar I would imagine that Mary was still distraught with the Lord. She stayed behind, decided to wait. I don't know if she could face Jesus at the time. As we approach the middle of this chapter, chapter um, 11, 21, 25, 26, as we approach this, this is the crowning jewel of Jesus' message. It's a crown jewel of the gospel. It's a crown jewel of this passage. And the way I think we need to handle it, the way we need to look at it, is think about four strong men coming down the center aisle here. And they have a strong box in between them. And it's crusted with, with diamonds. It's a gold box. It's locked. And it's handcuffed to each of the men as they bring that strong box down here for us to view. They uncuff themselves and they open the box and they bring out a velvet cloth that's wrapped. And as they open that velvet cloth, you see the most spectacular diamond you've ever seen. You see the light refracting off of it, the glistening of the different colors, maybe on the walls, maybe on the black velvet cloth. As you view this precious stone, is the same way we need to look at this conversation that's going on between Martha and Jesus. It's amazing how Jesus handles the disappointment in Martha and Mary. Martha starts right in. Can you hear the tone in her voice? Lord, if you had been here, can you hear the accusation? Lord, 1121, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Wow. 
What an amazing statement. What a powerful statement. Can you hear the accusations in the tone? Lord, if you had been here, my brother surely would not have died. In great trials, I know I've uttered the same words. Lord, if you were here, or maybe if I had prayed more, if I had studied the word more, if I had been a better Christian, if I had been there when my brother shot my dad, maybe I could have prevented that. Oh, but Lord, if you had been there, I know it wouldn't have happened. I've been married for a few years. In the next part of this statement, I can hear the tone in Martha's voice. You see, every Christmas I get to do the Christmas budget, and I calculate how much we have to spend on everybody in the family. My wife has a pretty large family. So as I calculate it out, I figure, okay, babe, you got $4.50 to spend on each person. (laughs) Now, the tone in her voice when she talks to me, the way she expresses it is is almost exactly like this. Hey, buddy. My family is worth more than $4.50. Not only that, I'm going to spend a lot more money that, and you better have it in the bank because I'm going shopping tomorrow. I can imagine that that's the same tone in Martha's voice in the next part of the passage in 1122. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, 22. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Can you hear the tone in her voice? I know right now, I know it, Lord, that God will answer you and give you whatever you ask. What is Martha asking for? According to John, there is not, a, there's not, a re, there's not recorded in John in any previous chapters of a Jesus raising the dead of a resurrection. But I believe Martha is saying with this tone, with these words, Jesus... I know God will give you whatever you ask for, and I want my brother back. Bring my brother back is what I believe is implied in that, in what she is saying. Is Martha asking Jesus to raise the dead? Wow. Wow. She believes that he is the Son of God. Who is this Jesus? But on the other hand, the tone of her voice, she believes this is the son of God. She believes that he can do it. But just who does she think she's talking to? Who does she believe she's addressing? Can she have the freedom to address Jesus with this tone of voice? Do we have the freedom to be able to pray any way we want to and express our thoughts and our feelings to God? Can we express our disappointments with him? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. He is a big God. He can handle our thoughts. He can handle our disappointments. You're thinking it anyway. You might as well pray it, right? Lord, I'm in the middle of this trial, and I'm very disappointed in you. I know you're God, and I'm just down here, immortal. But, Lord, I'm sure worried. I'm worried sick that you're not going to come through. I'm worried that you're not going to deliver. I'm afraid. Lord, I need you. Oh, yes. I want you to notice, well, first of all, there's questioning Jesus' motives. 
There's an accusation in her statements, and there's a demand for him to use his influence for her good. Notice Jesus' reply. Notice his tender reply to this woman. He's been accused. Accusations. He's been asked for the impossible. Wow. But his reply to her is so tender. He doesn't reply in anger. He just says, Martha, you know your brother will rise again. 1123. Your brother will rise again. Now, we often see Martha as the one who's the busybody, the one who's not paying attention, the one that's getting everything else done. But Martha's pretty astute. Listen to her answer. I know, Lord, my brother will rise on the last day at the resurrection. She's been paying attention. She believes in this Jesus. She knows her theology. Lord, I know that my brother will rise in the resurrection at the last day. Now, here is the crown jewel. Here is the one, the diamond-crusted box, the one that's been opened, the jewel that stands before us. Jesus replies to her, I'm sure that everything had to stop. I'm sure the cricket stopped cricking, the butterfly stopped flapping. The disciples are looking at Jesus as he pauses for a moment and looks Martha face to face, and he says, Martha, I am the resurrection. Wow crowning jewel of his ministry. Jesus is the resurrection. Basically, Jesus is saying, before Abraham, I am. I am the ancient of days. I am the creator. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man goes to heaven. No man sees the Father except through me. I am the one who breathed into Adam's nostrils and brought him to life. I am the one that formed you in the womb and counted your days. I am the one who was, who is, and will be. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I who stands before you, Martha, I am the resurrection. That's where all of our hope lies. That's the whole gospel. It's amazing here, as we take a look at this, the full conversation goes in 11, 25, and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Job says in Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives. And though my skin will be destroyed, yet in my flesh will I see God and my heart yearns for him. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and he who, he who lives and believes in me will never die. Now, this is amazing. If you share the gospel with someone, you tell them that Jesus is the resurrection, you tell them that Jesus has died on a cross to forgive you of your sins, and he is raised again from the grave, you got to ask the same question that Jesus asked Martha. The same question that he asks you today, at the end of 26, he says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Are you putting your faith in me that I am the resurrection? Now, after he's gone through all of the explanation of who he is, 
He's gone through the explanation that he is the resurrection. Mary, her sister, appears on the scene. Mary's a little bit different than Martha. Mary throws herself at his feet, weeping. Jesus has just explained the greatest statement, and now he has to face Mary. And Mary comes at Jesus with the exact same statement. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Wow. At this point, you would think Jesus would become impatient. I know I would. <laughs> I, know, I know I would. But no, not Jesus. Here's a woman weeping at his feet, asking him, Lord, where were you? Why didn't you come in and save my brother from death? I'll bet you, though, as impatient as I would be, I'd probably be asking, what is this? Is this criticized Jesus Day? Everybody's going to come at me and criticize what I am doing. Everybody's going to come at me and criticize everything that I'm doing, and you have no idea what I have in store for you. Jesus didn't act that way. It said that he saw the crowds around and Mary weeping. And it says that Jesus wept. The only thing I can compare it to, which is stated uh, which is the way it's stated in the Greek is when I was adopting my two boys, we had an opportunity to get their baby brother. Right after he was born, we had him for about three weeks. And while his, while his birth mother was pregnant, Anthony was talking about the baby all the time. When we got Adam, he was so excited that Adam was going to live with us. Now, Anthony was about four years old at the time. After about three weeks, I got a phone call while they were at school. My wife was at work, and they said, at 10 o'clock, the court has ordered you to bring the baby to the social services. And I just said, no way. I cannot let this baby disappear at 10 o'clock, and nobody says goodbye to him. So I bargained with them. I was, I was ready to leave town. <laughs> I bargained with them and talked them into bringing them up at 4 o'clock that afternoon before they closed. And when Deborah got the kids and came home. Deborah, I talked to her. She knew about it. Anthony didn't know yet, so we held, each one of them held the baby. And Deb got Adam, was holding him, and I wanted to be right next to Anthony. So I knelt down beside him and had him in my arms, and I let him know the news that we had to take Adam back. Four-year-old. He wailed so hard and so loud. It was haunting. I have never heard a soul wail like that. He wailed so, you could, in my little house, you could hear it all through the house. Outside on the street, he was wailing where everybody could hear him. And he was just, oh, oh. I was afraid he couldn't take a breath. He collapsed in my arms and soaked my shirt with his tears because he was his little baby Adam couldn't live with us. In the scriptures, it says that Jesus wept. It's literally saying that he snorted like a horse. He wept with such convulsion with his whole body. He felt their pain and entered their circumstances with his whole being that when he wept, he wept and snorted like a horse. What's hard to realize about this passage 
is Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to die. Jesus knew the pain that the family would suffer at his death. Did it mean that he doesn't care? Hebrews 4 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, we have a high priest in the Holy of Holies that is able to sympathize and understand everything that we've gone through, everything, every trial that we're a part of. He can enter in and he understands. He even wept with Mary and Martha over the death of their brother. The ultimate goal of this whole narrative is seen in 11.4 and 11.40. In 11.4, it says, when Jesus heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. And a little bit later, he tells him that, yes, Lazarus is dead. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. In 11.40, it says, then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. As we go through our trials, as we go through our tests, it's okay to question. It's okay to ask what's going on because that we know Jesus before we enter that trial. But as we go through a trial, we feel the pressures of life pushing in to the point where we can't pray, where it feels like we can't breathe we have new facts. There's new evidences in our life that we need to analyze. We knew Jesus here, but this seems contrary to his character. Why am I going through such a trial at this point? Now, as I analyze the facts, as I analyze the evidences, as I go through the trial, I need to look and see if Jesus is who he says he is. Then I need to ask myself once again, do I believe who he says he is with the new evidences, with the new facts in my life? As we process it, I think our faith becomes stronger and we understand more of God's purpose in our own lives. For we know that this God will work all things out for his glory and for the good of those who love him. I'll take a few minutes to close it's almost anticlimactic to me. The, the jewel is Jesus proclaiming that he is the resurrection, but Lazarus is still in a tomb and we need to bring him out, right? <laughs> I don't think we can have a full understanding of that passage or of what he says unless he does demonstrate that he is the resurrection. So Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I was talking to one of our deacons earlier and he said the reason why he named him is because if he just said, come out, every tomb may have opened up at that point. <laughs> so as Lazarus comes out, there's two groups that respond. There's two groups that look at this situation. Both groups see it. Neither group denies it. One group sees it and puts their faith in Jesus Christ. It's amazing what the other group does. They go and report, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. They went to the Pharisees and reported the facts of what happened. 
But they, with the Pharisees, plotted to kill Jesus. Man, it's amazing. Two people can see the exact same thing and have two completely different responses. You need to ask yourself today what Jesus asked Martha. You need to ask yourself, he is asking you today, do you believe this? I like um, when I go through a trial, I often flip through Daniel and read Daniel chapter 3. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, three teenage boys. What great examples, what great wisdom these guys had. Here's three boys standing before one of the greatest kings of all time, before one of the greatest empires ever created. And the king tells them to bow down and worship a golden idol, and they refute the king and tell them, no, king, we won't bow down and worship this idol. In fact, what they say is, my God will deliver us from your hand, O king. My God will save us. And they also go into, by chance if he doesn't, they weren't quitting on God. They weren't doubting him. But just by chance if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down and worship your golden idols. You do realize that they were still thrown into the fiery furnace? They were still thrown into the trial, and their faith was tested. Romans 8, 18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. See, we got to take everything that Jesus says. we got to take the fact that he is the resurrection and put it into the right perspective. Jesus is the resurrection, and those who believe in him will live with him for eternity. If you have eternity here, and you have our life present time here, it's a blink of an eye. What we go through, life will travel through us faster than we can imagine. The trials and the tribulations that we go through now are painful, but it's not worth it doesn't hold a candle. It's not worth comparing to the glories that we'll know in Jesus Christ. When we put things into the right perspective, it helps us to hang on a little bit longer. It helps us to hold on to our faith a little bit stronger. It helps us to walk through this life with a little more comfort knowing that our country is yet to come. That our life that we will truly live is yet to come. Now, you're still probably wondering about the raiding the church fridge and how all that has to do with the resurrection. I want to talk to you about Ann Hazel for a minute. I've met businessmen, pastors, women. Each one of them has said that Aunt Hazel, and a lot of them called her Aunt Hazel, was a great influence in their life. When they came to her, a uh, woman after service, uh, Donna Tangay, when she's working with a law firm, came to Aunt Hazel, and they would talk to her and share life with her. And she would often call in Aunt Virginia, and both of them would lay hands on that person and pray for him. She would exhort you. She grabbed, she grabbed me by the lapel once. Hey, buddy. Kind of like my wife. Hey, buddy. He's worth serving. Big Dave says he'd go to her, by her office to grab some candy and she'd stop him and hug him and say, David, preach the word. 
See, it's gray hairs like her that have really made me feel like I'm a part of the church family. Ladies like her that would grab a hold of me like Donna does and encourage me. It's worth it. The journey's worth it. He's a savior worth living for. He's worth preaching for. He's worth evangelizing for. He's worth living for. Keep living for him. The trials that we face today are not worth comparing to the glories that we'll see in Jesus. What I'm amazed by is I haven't been around it too much in my life. I haven't, I've known a lot of Christians, but I haven't been in a place around a, a funeral where somebody, a great Christian, dies. I've been to funerals. I've been to friends' funerals. I've been to family funerals where most of them are saying, wow, they prayed a prayer 30 years ago, but they've been in prison at 12 years, and, man, they have an alcoholic problem. I, I hope they made it. Those kinds of words were not spoken around Ann Hazel. When she's taking her last breath, people are singing, people are praying, people are weeping, but they did not weep as it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. They did not weep as people weep with no hope as the world weeps. They wept for their loss, but they know beyond the shadow of a doubt where Hazel is today. She's one that believed. When Jesus said, I am the resurrection, do you believe this? She said, yes. And she lived her life like that. There was no doubts in that room. I was, I was, I was dumbfounded. I was taken by that. There was no doubts. There was no wondering. I've never been in a situation where not one person doubted that she was in the hands of Jesus. Can you answer the question that Jesus is asking you today? Can you answer it? He's asking you, do you believe this? There's Christians all around you. There's Christians qualified to answer your questions. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ yet, I urge you, I plead with you, don't wait another day. Do it today. Ask somebody around you. Ask a Christian that you know. Tell me more about Jesus, and they'll lead you in the paths of righteousness. They'll lead you in the prayer of salvation. Holy Father, you're an amazing God, and we thank you so much that you sent word by Jesus that you are the resurrection, that we can put our faith and our trust in you no matter what trials we are going through, no matter how we are pressed within and without. We know that our future is with you, that our hope lies in the resurrection that Jesus claims to be. We thank you that you sent your son, that he died on that cross and forgave me of every sin in my life. And I know that he is preparing a place for me now. Oh, would you make that message clear to each of us today that we might claim it for our salvation. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.